What's up, Frop fans? This week, uh, Matt is still in Costa Rica, but I'm here and I'm talking to Alex Gibney, who you may know from one of his million documentaries. Uh, he won an Oscar for Taxi to the Dark Side. He made the Enron movie and a whole bunch of other ones since then. Uh, he makes like one or two every year. Uh, anyway, his latest is out on HBO this week, and it is called The Forever Prisoner. It's mostly about the CIA's torture program and what a comedy of errors it was. Uh, it started with this prisoner, Abu Zubaydah. He was taken to Thailand for interrogation and was actually given up good information just based on regular interrogation work, building rapport, showing the guy that they knew stuff about him, all the normal stuff that police and prosecutors usually do. Uh, but then the CIA got involved and they went to these kooky contractor guys who had this whole crazy torture plan uh, and everything kind of went sideways from there. Uh, anyway, I think we pretty much explain everything you need to know in the interview uh, and everybody we're talking about. Uh, also, we're going to be doing a live episode of Pod Yourself a Gun in San Francisco at SF Sketchfest in January. Uh, that's going to be January 15th at the Piano Fight Theater at 10 p.m. Uh, you can buy tickets now, and I will put a link in the episode description. All right, I think that's it. Enjoy. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? <laughs> Not too bad. Um God, how many documentaries? You seem like the busiest man in uh, documentaries. How do you uh, manage to keep up with it all? It, it is exhausting, but um, they don't happen fast. But I tend to do more than one at a one at a time. But then there were a lot of years where I, I couldn't get anything going. So this this certainly beats that. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, like, can you tell me about the lawsuit uh, to get the book unredacted? And was that was that partly like the genesis of the project? It was, you know, this was a story that really I couldn't tell um, more than a, a couple of years ago. And one of the things that enabled me to tell it was a lawsuit that Ray Bonner, who's a former New York Times journalist and I uh, launched against the CIA with a great help of this extraordinary uh, group at the Yale Law School called the MFIA that, that, that help, uh, help journalists and filmmakers try to loose material from the federal government. And much to our surprise, we uh, the CIA backed down. We didn't have to go to court, but I think they saw that we had such a compelling case that they had redacted Sufan's book, um, not really for any good reason, but for, for purely punitive reasons, because he was telling a story that um, they didn't want told. Right, and so Sufan was the FBI interrogator, correct? Can you tell me about you know Abu Zubaydah and the sort of, Sure. chain of events that led up to that? Sure. So Abu Zubaydah was a facilitator, independent facilitator, who would run people in and out of the Halden training camp, uh, which is a place where a lot of jihadis went to get trained in Afghanistan. Abu Zubaydah was based in Pakistan. He was captured in March of 2002 um, and identified and sent to a black site in Thailand, a CIA black site in Thailand. But the CIA wasn't convinced it was Abu Zubaydah. And in any event, they didn't really have experienced interrogators uh, who, could, who could do this job. By and large, the CIA doesn't do interrogation. So Ali Soufan, an FBI agent who had a great deal of experience um, interrogating members of Al-Qaeda, was sent there uh, with uh, his partner, Steve Gordon, to start interrogating Abu Zubaydah. And he was the one who interrogated him first. And as it happens... Ali Soufan got all the information 
that was able to be gotten from um, Abu Zubaydah and did so with um, traditional lawful rapport building techniques. But the CIA was convinced, despite all the information he gave up, that he was holding back. And so they wanted to do something different, as they said. Right. Yeah. Like, so how much of this was just like the CIA trying to, I don't know, what were they like, justify their existence or uh, some sort of interagency like overreach? Part of it was a, a kind of um, delusion um, that they they just wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. There were certain analysts in Washington who was convinced that Abu Zubaydah was the number three in Al Qaeda, which he was not. And other CIA agents in Pakistan knew he wasn't, but certain people in Washington were convinced he was the number three. So that was one thing. But a part of it has to do with just kind of pitiful turf war stuff. You know, mm-hmm. uh, within uh, an hour of, Abu, uh, of, of Ali Sufan interrogating Abu Zubaydah, he gave Ali Sufan information about an impending plot against Israel, uh, funded by um some folks in Saudi Arabia, relayed this to the CIA. The CIA was delighted. Oh, my God, he's already talking. George Tenet, head of the CIA, wanted to congratulate the CIA agents involved. Um, but when he learned they were FBI agents, he flew into a rage. Now, you'd think, why would he fly into a rage? People, people's lives have been saved. What difference does it make whether it's an FBI agent or a CIA agent? But Tenet was determined that this interrogation be considered to be a CIA operation. So he quickly said, so he said he dispatched one of his um, Myrmidons to try to find somebody to interrogate Abu Zubaydah, who was from the CIA. And in, in almost laughable fashion, this guy goes to his lawyer who says, well, you know, I think my wife knows somebody. And the person his wife knew happened to be a guy named James Mitchell, a contractor that they had hired to analyze some um, uh, pamphlet, and they sent him on an X-plane to Thailand, and he became the inventor of the CIA's torture program. Right, and so th- there's this guy who seems the most to me like some sort of uh, like Coen Brothers character or something. Like, where did, where where did they find this guy James Mitchell? And can you tell me like a, a little more about who this guy was and what his whole deal was? Well, James Mitchell was a psychologist, and indeed, in his field. He was a very accomplished man. He was a psychologist who had worked for many years at the Air Force Sears School. And Sears stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And what that is, it's a program we put some soldiers through um, to, to help them learn how to escape if they're captured, how to live off the land if they need to, and also how to resist brutal interrogation techniques like waterboarding. So um, Mitchell... Uh, while he was expert in that training program, had never done an interrogation ever. Uh, And uh, he didn't know very much about Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda-related groups. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, the CIA decided to put him in charge of this interrogation program, or at least to design these techniques, which were kind of retrofitting the SEER program into, rather than a resistance program, into an interrogation program, which is also crazy because if the CIA had asked its own people who had been studying these techniques for many years, they would have told them that when you deprive somebody of sleep for 72 hours, 
their cognitive abilities simply disappear. So they're, they're, they're hallucinating to you. They're not telling you anything that's truthful. And what you get out of these techniques is not the truth, but just what it is that you want to hear. The person will tell you anything to make the pain stop. Right. Um, yeah, a few things about that. Like one of the things that confused me about this was like even in the most sort of cartoony like action movie conception of torture, usually like you're trying to get someone to divulge uh, some information that you think that they actually have. This seemed like it was just like this giant fishing expedition. Like did they even know what they wanted him to say when they were, uh, you know, depriving him of sleep and waterboarding him and putting him in a box and all the other stuff? Well, I mean, I, they had a mission, and the mission was to prevent imminent attacks. And so they were hopeful that he knew about imminent attacks. But here's the thing. I mean, even in the early days, and there were two sort of stages to the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah. One was a kind of loosey-goosey experimentation stage before they had legal authorization to engage in things like waterboarding, where they would sleep deprive him, make put him, make sure he was naked, douse him with water, red hot chili peppers music all the time, stuff like that. Um, but they, that went on for about a month and a half. Now, once you're out of action as an operative for a month and a half, everybody around you who's part of your group is almost always going to change their plans. They're not going to keep going forward. So anything that he would have had about an imminent attack was already almost certainly useless. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, um, they were afraid that by using these techniques, when I say they, the CIA was afraid, that by using these techniques, uh, their agents might go to prison because they were likely illegal under the law. And so they went through a very long process, took them about 45 days to get legal authorization to use these techniques. And meanwhile, Abu Zubaydah is just sitting there and, and cables were coming in asking about people like uh, the courier to Osama bin Laden, who's ultimately the person that led us to Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. But nobody could get any information because they were too worried about that. So what was crazy about this was they it was all about preventing the next attack. And yet they went to elaborate lengths, taking month after month after month to come up with a cockamamie program that was never going to work, that already was completely out of date. It's mm -hmm. hard to really understand what they were thinking right and wasn't uh zubaydah Zubayda also didn't he have also memory issues you said from like a previous uh a previous um wound that he'd had so like well, he, he had a head injury mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but i think to some extent that was overwrought in, in mm -hmm. terms of thinking that he was you know hallucinating or had memory issues he may have had some memory issues but but honestly he gave up a lot of very valuable and accurate information to Ali Sufan. Ali Sufan recalls that he may have been the smartest, um, you know, operative that he ever spoke to. That Abu Zubaydah was, you know, smart as a whip. Mm -hmm. Right. So then Mitchell, who seems like this sort of uh, like a kook with a PowerPoint, basically to some extent, like, uh, and he, you said he was a contractor. Like, would would people be surprised at how much of this like uh, policy is being dictated by these sort of outside contractors in collaboration with these agencies? I think they would. I mean, I think they would be surprised that somebody who was, had never done an interrogation was suddenly put in charge of designing an interrogation program. 
That would, that would yeah. be shocking to me. Yeah. I think it would be shocking for most Americans to learn that ultimately the CIA contracted with Mitchell and his partner, uh, uh, Jessen, Bruce Jessen, um, for $183 million to continue to um, build out and check on this program. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I, I think people would be pretty surprised. And, and, and what's interesting is there were a lot of people inside the CIA that actually had pretty good information about what you might expect from a program like this, but they were, they were never consulted. And, and when they did find out what was going on, they raised a ruckus, but they weren't listened to. There was some determination inside the CIA that they just had to get tough. That, that was the most important thing. And that this guy Mitchell was going to, there was a mechanism for him to get tough without everybody being prosecuted. Why? Because these were techniques that were being used on our own people. So it's being done on our own people. How could it be bad? Mm -hmm. Right. And so he and his partner sort of came up with the, that whole plan for uh, the enhanced interrogation techniques. And then how much were they the ones that were actually doing the hands-on carrying out of that? And like how many, how many, like how much support staff was actually involved in the nuts and bolts of that? There were guards, there were doctors, there were nurses, um, there were interrogators, but Mitchell and Jessen were running it. I mean, particularly in August of 2002, uh, they were uh, doing and or supervising the waterboarding themselves. So they were hands-on. Mm -hmm. I mean, no even, he, about that. even he gets sort of disillusioned by the process towards the end, it seems like, right? Well, after 72 hours, he was convinced that Abu Zubaydah didn't have any more to say, that they had been about as tough on him as, as you could possibly be on a human being, um, particularly in terms of waterboarding him or putting him inside a, a, of a coffin-shaped box for days at a time. And he asked that they stop. But the CIA was so convinced that he had more information to give that they made Mitchell Jessen at all, keep going and waterboard him again and again and again. And so much so that 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 Mitchell and the people at the black side said, look, these guys clearly don't understand what's going on here. So they made a kind of best of tape, or you might call it a worst of tape to show just how brutal they were being. They were videotaping all of this. <clears throat> and they sent this best of tape back to Washington, convinced that they would be so horrified by what was going on. After all, Abu Zubaydah had even stopped breathing at one point and had to be revived. That, they, that the CIA command central would say, stop it. But instead, just the opposite happened. They said, keep going. Mm -hmm. um, until Abu Zubaydah was waterboarded 83 times. So Mitchell, you know, actually tried to make it stop, but the CIA overruled him. Right. And you talked about sort of the doctors and the guards and all the people that were sort of tangentially involved and I imagine didn't get into what they were doing in order to be torturers. Did you, were, were you able to track down any of these people and and uh I, I imagine you were trying to maybe find some of those people involved the people i've always wanted to talk to were the people i mean we, we talked to we talked to one person off the record who was um at the black site um in that early kind of improvisational period but i've always wanted to talk to one of the nurses on site or one of the guards on site uh, who we know from the stuff that is unredacted that they were weeping, they were they were complaining of how brutal it was. But the CIA won't ever let us 
get to them and won't let us know who they were. The CIA has been very assiduous about only allowing those who agree with the program to talk. And those who were dissenters have remained silent out of fear. Um, so it's been a disappointment that I've never been able to get. And we know that, you know, there's a, a, a very impressive torture report that was uh, conducted by the Senate Intelligence Committee. We know from some of the comments there, which are unattributed, um, that, that people were very, very, very upset. But we don't know who those people are. I've always wanted to talk to them. Do you have any sense of what they are afraid of if, you know, if they would come forward? Well, their information, their identities are classified. So mm -hmm. if they were to say I was there, they could potentially be prosecuted. Um, also, some of these people have, um, the way the CIA often does it is you get um, contractor contracts uh, going forward that depends on a certain level of um, uh, classification. That is to say, you have to be uh, your security clearance or your security clearance and so forth and so on. And that would be jeopardized, of course, if they were to talk to a member of the press. So they risk prosecution and loss of livelihood. Uh, right. And that keeps them from talking. So uh, even after all this is done, the CIA sort of has like a vested interest in uh, promoting the idea that it, that it worked and it was always like a, a good thing. Um, like, did, How cl closely did the CIA work with like the people who made Zero Dark Thirty and what what part did they play in some of the media's portrayals of uh, that program? The CIA has tried very hard to create a narrative that this program was a real winner. That is to say, it got great actionable intelligence, and that nothing illegal uh, or untoward was ever done. Um, they cooperated vigorously with uh, the makers of Zero Dark Thirty, and there are a lot of cables. Uh, which have been, you know, unearthed uh, by Jason Leopold and others uh, that show the degree of extraordinary cooperation that the CIA gave to that filmmaking team. In addition, you know, there's four people, four key people from the CIA who are featured in this film. George Tenet, former head of the CIA. Jose Rodriguez, uh, former head of the Counterterrorism Center. John Rizzo, uh, former acting general counsel of the CIA. And the contractor, James Mitchell. All four of them wrote memoirs about the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah. <laughs> All four of those memoirs were ghostwritten by the same man, Bill <laughs> Harlow, um, which gives you some sense of how carefully and assiduously they cultivate this narrative. Right. And like in doing this project where you're being critical of the CIA, have there ever been times where you were maybe like scooped by other filmmakers who were cooperating more with uh, the CIA and in terms of trying to get their narrative out there? Well, you know, I would argue that, uh, I mean, I, I way back in the day when I, you know, not long after I made a film called Taxi to the Dark Side, um, you know, I, I, I had a, a, a public printed exchange with, um, you know, about the making of Zero Dark Thirty, because it seemed like, um, you know, they presented it as if they had gotten the truth uh, and that everybody else had just got it wrong. And, and I vigorously objected to that. But part of the problem was, and that's one of the reasons I made this film, was that we couldn't get our hands on information or testimony that would refute them. Um, and that's why we sued the CIA to try to get Ali Sufan unmuzzled. Right. I mean, and he's still in Guantanamo and 
When you say he, you mean Abu Zubaydah. Right, yeah. And, I mean, one of Obama's promises was that he was going to close Guantanamo. Uh, Has there been any movement on that? And why, why is it that when, you know, presidents say one thing on the campaign trail and then they get in there and suddenly it's like a not... It's not a non-issue anymore. Like what, like what is holding them back on that? You know, there's some good reason. There are some bad reasons. I mean, Congress has passed the law saying that no detainees from Guantanamo can be transferred to U.S. soil, which strikes me as ridiculous, <laughs> considering how many Al-Qaeda operatives we have living long term in the supermax in Florence, Colorado. Um, but... Uh, also, I think there's a political cost to be paid. You know, as soon as you say, well, we're letting go somebody from Guantanamo, people say, well, once again, we're soft on terrorism, which is bullshit in my mind. But but to politicians, they pay attention to that stuff. And it's a nowhere land of the law. Nobody knows what kind of law applies down there because people, you know, these detainees, remember, were originally sent to Guantanamo not to be prosecuted but to be in a place, to be in a land that was outside the law so that they wouldn't have access to things like habeas corpus and stuff like that. So there's a lot of arguments about, well, what is the jurisdiction here? Is it the military? Is it the civil courts? It's a mess, but it's a mess that could be cleared up, I'm confident, by a a chief executive, a president, who is determined um, to move past the kind of cheap, um, sloganeering that that m- might result if if he tried to shut it down because it's it's tremendously damaging to the United States of America. It stands as a great symbol for all the terrorists in the world that the United States is is utterly hypocritical. Did any? I mean, I, I think in the movie Gina Haspel, who ended up being the chief of the CIA, she was the one of the people responsible for destroying that videotape that. Uh... That videotape, a lot of videotapes. Remember, they were running cameras constantly of the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah starting back in April. So there were a lot of videotapes uh, and they were all destroyed um, without legal authorization um, by a man named, you know, upon the authority of Jose Rodriguez. But the person who executed that order was Gina Haspel, then went on to become head of the CIA. So not much accountability for destroying what was likely evidence of a crime. And do you remember if, if that ever came up when she was being uh, appointed or confirmed uh, in that position? Was that ever like an issue? It did come up um, and she was confirmed anyway, which is kind of shocking to me. Right. And then of the people that were you know, part of this, like Alberto Gonzalez and some of the Cheney's lawyers, were, did anyone ever seem to have any professional consequences from uh, any of this program? Not really. <laughs> I mean, um, the, this is one of the this is one of those cases where you'd have to say who's been held accountable for this, and you'd have to say no one really. Who's been held accountable? Have any charges been leveled? Uh, has has any have there been any professional consequences for anybody involved in this program? Despite the fact that um, it was a group of people and a rather large group of people who went overboard to try to legalize a system of torture that was utterly immoral and got absolutely pitiful 
and terrible, terrible information. Um, so, and then destroyed evidence of potential crimes, and yet they all walked. So it's kind of shocking that there hasn't been any sense of accountability. That's one reason why, you know, there was a, a as we were talking about before, there was a torture report that was released by the Senate Intelligence Committee, but it's a very small portion, heavily redacted, of the torture report that has been released. I would hope that some larger consequence of this at some day in the future would be the release of the full report. So we really know entirely what happened with all its mistakes, its, its, its egregious stupidity, and, and the damage that's, done, that's been done to this country so that we never go down this road again. Do you ever feel uh, caught between having to choose whether to make like a moral argument against it and having to make uh, like a material one? Because, you know, there's like the moral issue of torture, but also the idea that it doesn't work either. I, I, I think both are, are perfectly valid arguments. I mean, I, 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 I probably shouldn't say this, but if it was definitive that torture worked every time, and by inflicting pain on one individual, you could save the lives of thousands. That might be uh, a moral argument for, for it, but it's never been proven that torture works at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. All of these techniques are designed to make somebody say exactly what you want them to hear, not to tell you the truth. And, and as a result of these lies, um, uh, the, you know, there have been terrible consequences. The guy who was captured just before Abu Zubayd, a man named Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, was sent by the CIA to Egypt to be tortured, where it said, you know, ask your questions in the morning, you get your answers in the afternoon, rather cynically. And uh, he gave up some information that linked Osama bin Laden with Saddam Hussein. Mm. That information was used by Colin Powell when he went before uh, the United Nations to make the claim for why the United States should invade. Um, and then not long after, the United States invades Iraq, which had disastrous consequences. It's revealed that actually Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi just said what it was he thought we wanted him to say, that it was false. He recanted. That there was no connection between Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. So there is inevitably a moral argument. You should not treat people who are under your total control with such abuse and there are laws and statutes that are observed worldwide, including the Geneva Convention. So, yes, there is a moral argument. But two, it's clear that torture is not an effective means of gathering good, actionable intelligence. Right. Well, I appreciate you talking to me. And, uh, yeah, I hope lots of people see the movie. And thank you for making it. Thanks, man. All Much right. appreciated. All Take right. Care. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Sure.